I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Josh Blackman, a professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston, and a prolific blogger. Josh, welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for having me. So this week, we're going to talk about a big Supreme Court grant and a missed opportunity. I also recently sat down with my heritage colleague, Paul Larkin, to reflect on his 27 Supreme Court arguments. So first up, the Supreme Court justices recently sat for their official portrait, which they do whenever they have a new member of the court. And now they're out until January 4th, but not without dropping a couple of bombs before leaving. On Monday, the court granted cert in an incredibly important case involving deference to administrative agencies. The case is Kaiser versus Wilkie, and the issue is whether the court should overrule Auer versus Robbins and Bowles versus Seminole Rock and Sand Company, which direct courts to defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of its own ambiguous regulation. So this isn't the first time the court has been asked to overrule these cases, But with the addition of two justices who are very skeptical of agency deference, this could be the beginning of the end for our and Seminole Rock. And perhaps other agency deference doctrines are not far behind them. So, Josh, how do you think this case is going to play out? Well, let's first explain what our and Seminole Rock deference are. Um, Most people are familiar with the idea of Chevron deference. This is the idea that if Congress enacts a statute with an ambiguous term, that courts will give deference to an agency's interpretation of that ambiguous term so long as that interpretation is reasonable, and that's a fairly broad standard. Um, Our deference, or sometimes called seminal rock deference, is a little bit different. Here, when an agency issues a regulation and then subsequently interprets its own regulation, the courts have to grant deference to the agency's interpretation of its own organic regulations. Um, And the reason why this is important is you might have one administration issue a regulation and then a subsequent administration with different views interprets it perhaps a little bit differently. We know that at least four justices are skeptical of our, uh, Justice Thomas, um, Justice Gorsuch, uh, even Justice Roberts, and Justice Alito have expressed some doubts about our. Um, I don't know that Justice Kavanaugh uh, spoke about it. Um, on the D.C. Circuit, but in general, I think he's skeptical of deference doctrines as well. So counting one, two, three, four, five, there very well may be five judges willing to say that um, agencies should not get deference uh, when interpreting their own regulations. Now, that's, this is not the end of the world, um, so long as the agency actually provides a persuasive justification, the outcome will probably be the same. But it's one area where the agency needs to meet its burden of proof. They can't simply assert something and hope the courts will rubber stamp it. So do you see any of the more liberal members of the court perhaps coming along with the conservatives? Well, one of the one of the ironies right now is that we have President Trump in the White House. And the people who are most skeptical of deference, that is skeptical to the Trump administration, are the conservative justices. And traditionally, the, the, the people who are most uh, in favor of deference agencies are liberals. <laughs> so here, by giving deference to the Trump administration, they're actually emboldening Trump's power. So you might have a weird alliance where uh, some of the liberal members of the court maybe want to hamstring the president a tad and will go along with peeling back these deference doctrines. But uh, what's good for the goose is sauce for the gander. Whatever doctrines are established now in the Trump administration – 
whatever skepticism there is will be applied with full force to the next president, whoever it happens to be. Well, I think the argument is likely to occur in uh, March. So we'll see what happens there. And, you know, we'll expect an opinion by the end of June at the latest. All right. Now let's turn to a case that the court isn't going to hear that's disappointed a lot of conservatives. It's Gee versus Planned Parenthood and Anderson versus Planned Parenthood. These cases dealt with states' uh, ability to prevent Medicaid funds from going to pay for non-abortion services at Planned Parenthood clinics. And the issue is whether Medicaid recipients have a judicially enforceable right to bring a federal lawsuit challenging states' decisions regarding Medicaid providers. So the case doesn't have much to do with abortion, uh, but a lot of people, including three dissenting justices, are speculating that the fact that Planned Parenthood was one of the parties in the case is why the court is not going to hear it. Uh, in fact, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a rather fiery dissent from the denial of cert, joined by Justices Alito and Gorsuch, accusing the um, other members of shirking their duty. And here's a short passage from that dissent. Some tenuous connection to a politically fraught issue does not justify abdicating our judicial duty. If anything, neutrally applying the law is all the more important when political issues are in the background. Now, in fairness to the other justices, the fact that they didn't vote to grant cert here doesn't mean they necessarily agree with the arguments that Planned Parenthood or the Medicaid recipients made. Uh, there could be other reasons for the denial. So, Josh, what, what do you think happened? Well, it's very rare that we get insights into how the justices think internally. We don't, we don't see that very often. Um, this dissent gives us a pretty clear picture as far as it goes. On the court, there are nine justices, and to grant certiorari, you need four votes, the rule of four. Here we have uh, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch saying we really need to take this case. Um, the obvious implication is that the other six justices said no. And it's not too hard to think of who Justice Thomas is referring to. He's talking about the Chief Justice and um, Justice Kavanaugh. Now, this case has nothing to do with abortion rights at all. It has to do with whether they're standing to bring these private causes of action to challenge these Medicaid, uh, these Medicaid decisions. Um, I don't have a strong opinion on the, on the merits there. I think it's a fairly technical issue. But as a general matter, Justice Roberts and probably Justice Kavanaugh are skeptical of court-created causes of action of the sort in this, the lower courts. There's also a very deep split where the courts of appeals have gone all over the place on this. So this is the perfect vehicle. And, and Justice Thomas writes that the reason why this case didn't get certiorari uh, has to do with the fact that respondents are named Planned Parenthood. And he's basically insinuating, hey, Kavanaugh, I know you're here. I know you're new to the court, but you should not be defensively denying certiorari uh, because it might bring some bad press. Um, Justice Thomas cites one of my favorite Federalist papers, number 78, which says that judges must be independent. This independent spirit allows them to correct mischiefs in our society. <laughs> uh, we can't consult popularity, but only consult the law. And this is a fairly, fairly stringent uh, broadside against his colleagues that, that is spilled out into the open. Um, now, I don't know if this will have any effect on Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, may, maybe it will push him away. Maybe he'll say, wow, Thomas, you're really right. But the fact this has to go to writing means they couldn't work this out internally. They could have just relisted the case and had a grant in the subsequent conference. Uh, so one of my biggest concerns about Justice Kavanaugh always has been 
this? Is he going to be like a John Roberts um, and think more about the court's reputation than about what the correct interpretation of the Constitution is? And we don't have nearly enough data points to get there yet, but this is a, an early data point that I'm keeping my eye on. It, it could also be the case that uh, Justice Kavanaugh you know, didn't didn't join the dissenters here. Um, you know, people are pointing to that fact, but that he didn't he he wouldn't have voted to grant cert because he wasn't sure where Chief Justice Roberts would be on the issue. But I understand that there is a case that's at the briefing stage in the Fourth Circuit uh, raising the same issue. Uh, so I, I think this may not be the last we hear of it. It, it may the, the Supreme Court may have another opportunity to review this issue and maybe they'll oh. maybe they'll take it next time. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know what other opportunities there are, um, and if indeed there's another vehicle, that, that that that's fine. The the significant point is that Thomas Alito and, uh, and the newest Trump appointee, uh, or the second newest Gorsuch, went on went on record with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could have held this dissent for another case; they didn't. So you know, I'm not I'm not giving up hope, um, but I think the proof is in the pudding, and and uh, we'll, we'll we'll see. I mean, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, you know, we had a case last week called Gamble. This has to do with the double jeopardy provision of the Constitution of whether the states and the federal government can both try someone for the same criminal conduct. And you had Justice Gorsuch making comments saying, well, I don't really care what the precedents say. I'm not locking someone in jail indefinitely uh, because we have a wrong constitutional decision. And then to that, Justice Kavanaugh countered that stare decisis is part of the original meaning of the Constitution. And he said virtually identical things during his confirmation hearing. So I think we may already be seeing a split uh, between the two newest members of the courts, one favoring more of stare decisis in the Roberts mold, and the other favoring more originalism in the Thomas mold. And again, it, it's, it's way too early to make these decisions, but uh, in, in, the, in the line of work that we have, we take what we can get. We look at little clues here and there, and uh, uh, we can make it uninformed <laughs> uneducated guesses as best as we can on podcasts, which sli- fortunately are not worth much for <laughs> appellate advocacy. We don't have to make these arguments in court. A slightly informed, uh, educated guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do the best I can. All right. Well, next up, I spoke with my colleague, Paul Larkin. Paul Larkin is the John, Barbara, and Victoria Rumpel Senior Legal Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Paul. Thank you for inviting me, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your career in the Solicitor General's office. You served as an assistant to the SG, arguing 27 cases before the Supreme Court. Tell me about some of the highlights of that job. Well, there were a great many. Uh, I remember it being just a wonderful opportunity for a host of reasons. It was exactly the sort of step that any lawyer would want to take. Essentially, working in the Solicitor General's office is being in the special forces of the legal profession. (laughs) The result is you get an opportunity to do things few other lawyers do with colleagues who are truly outstanding legal minds and, in my experience, and that of, I think, probably virtually everyone else, great personal uh, willingness to help their colleagues, to moot ideas, to help in moot courts and the like. It's a wonderful opportunity. It was a great experience. So what arguments were the most memorable for you? Well, one of them is a case called United States versus Sokolow. It dealt with the so-called drug courier profile. What happened was a fellow showed up at a ticket counter in Honolulu to purchase an open return round-trip ticket to Miami. 
he was going to leave on Tuesday and come back in all likelihood on Thursday. Now, not very many people uh, go uh, in the middle of the summer, this was, uh, from Honolulu to Miami, probably for a vacation at all, certainly not just for two days. Uh, (laughs) They certainly don't go to watch the Super Bowl since that's held in January or February. Uh, And given the way this fellow was dressed, it wasn't likely that he was going to be traveling for uh, for business. Uh, what was also interesting was he paid for the ticket, not with a credit card, which is the way most businessmen do, but uh, with a uh, roll of $20 bills about as thick as my fist. <laughs> and he was so nervous, he couldn't count them out. He just handed the roll over to the attendant behind the counter. Uh, that attendant had uh, worked in Miami and thought this was questionable behavior. So I asked him for a phone number that they could call to see if uh, uh there was going to be any delay, they would be able to call and let him know. Well, he gave a phone number and then that person behind the counter checked it and it was his voice on the answering machine with a different name. Uh, <clears throat> to make a long story short, he was stopped on his way back from Miami and uh, was found to be in possession of cocaine. And the question was whether there was reasonable suspicion to stop him and the argument turned on whether the factors that I just mentioned were, were adequate. Uh, it was an important case because it was involved the question of whether those sorts of factors were relevant evidence in mm-hmm. making the decision you could engage in a Terry stop. But that's the legal importance of it. What was most fun about the case was the lawyer representing Sokolo had uh, come in from Hawaii and he was dressed to the nines uh, and was wearing uh, glasses. Well, they were photoreflective glasses, with the result being that when he stood up there at the lectern, they turned dark. They became sunglasses. <laughs> so it looked like he was arguing a drug case in sunglasses. <laughs> and he stood up there, and one of the points he made was uh, this uh, so-called uh, drug courier profile is not very reliable because the uh, police stopped me when I was flying in from Hawaii. <laughs> And I looked at the nine justices and I I could swear, I thought they were thinking to themselves, this thing works pretty well. I would have stopped him too. So, yeah, he had no idea that uh, the uh, his glasses had gone from just uh, entirely normal to being completely dark. And as a result, he gave the uh, image that he did not want to give. <laughs> Another case is a case called Jacobson versus U.S. because that's a case where if I ha- – is the one case I'm quite sure if I had to – do it over again, I would have answered a question differently. Mm-hmm. It involved entrapment. And at one point, uh, someone asked me the question, what if uh, the police tell somebody it's permissible to do something uh, and the person does it, can, can he then claim entrapment if they arrest him? I said no, but I was not uh, trying to give the impression that that was lawful police conduct. It's not entrapment. It's an entirely different doctrine. Well, soon as I said no, Justice Scalia chimed in and said, you just lost me, Mr. Larkin. I, you had me up till that point. And everybody <laughs> laughed. And I was tempted because it came to me to say, well, if you give me three minutes uninterrupted, I'll get you back. And if, you, <laughs> if you're not persuaded, then vote against me. Because there was another doctrine. Uh, and it was uh, one that anybody could use to be exculpated. But I didn't say that, and then somebody else asked a question and went off in a different direction. But 
I lost that case five to four, and I have always kicked myself for not answering it with my gut reaction. <laughs> so I know you handled a lot of cases involving the military during your time in the SG's office, and the Secretary of Defense awarded you a medal for meritorious civilian service for one of those cases. Uh, so tell me about some of some of those military cases. Well, let me tell you, first off and most importantly, the military criminal justice system has some great lawyers in it. Uh, you know, there's this old saw that military justice is to justice as military music is to music. That's a canard. The people in the military justice system and the justice system as a whole work their hardest. They do their utmost to separate the guilty from the innocent. If you're innocent, they want to clear you of the charge and get you back to duty. If you're guilty, they want to separate you from everyone else for all the right reasons. Not the least of which is there is a bond among soldiers, sailors, and airmen that if you commit a crime, you break. And that hurts morale and group cohesion. So they care greatly about getting it right, whether mm -hmm. the charges are accurate and whether you've done what they said. Uh, so I, I tip my hat to the people who work in the military justice system. I had two cases uh, in particular that I uh, thought were important. One is a case called Solorio versus United States, which mm -hmm. dealt with the scope of court-martial jurisdiction. Uh, it uh, wound up overturning a 1969 case decided at the height of what was then the nation's most unpopular war that limited court-martial jurisdiction. Historically, if you were in uniform at the time you committed the crime and at the time of trial, the military had jurisdiction over you. In uh, 1969, in an opinion by Justice William O. Douglas, a real fan of the military, uh, <laughs> he also imposed a service connection limitation. The crime had to be service connected. Well, the Supreme Court wound up throwing that out in the Solorio case. Mm -hmm. But what was funny about the Solorio case was this. Uh, you may not know that uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist was in the Army Air Corps in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. He was a sergeant. Uh, and when the uh, justices come out from behind the curtain, uh, he stepped out and he looked out and he saw a sea of brass. They were all in sections. There was the Army was here, the Navy was there, the Air Force was someplace else, <laughs> and the Marine Corps someplace else still. And they all had more stars and bars than you could count. And they were all standing stiffly at attention. And he laughed. And he probably thought to himself, this is the first time I've ever seen this many generals and admirals stand at attention for a sergeant. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that. And then I had another case, Weiss versus U.S., that dealt with uh, the constitutionality of the setup of the military justice system. They mm -hmm. don't have a separate cadre of judges. The judges are picked uh, not like we do in the civilian system. They are assigned for different cases. Uh, they're not separately appointed as judges. They're officers in the mm -hmm. military. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to work with the members of all the different branches. It's a wonderful opportunity because I became friends with a bunch of them. That's wonderful. So did you have any rituals or traditions before your arguments? Yes, I did. The night before any case I argued, I would take my golden retriever, Holly, for a walk, and I would go through out loud 
my argument that I was preparing to give the next day. So Holly heard every argument that I ever made. <laughs> and she was never critical. Uh, <laughs> she, she was great in that regard. Uh, it was wonderful because it gave me a chance actually to, to say what I was going to say, to see how I said it, to uh, see if I stumbled, uh, to see how long it took. And she was a great companion and was very receptive to everything that I wanted to do. So, yeah, that was, that was my tradition. That was my ritual. So you worked for a couple of SGs, including the legendary Rex Lee. Tell me about working for him. Rex Lee was one of the best lawyers and best persons I've ever met in my life. I testified last year, I think it was, or earlier this year, uh, up on Capitol Hill. And his son, the senator, was chairing the hearing. <laughs> and he came down afterwards and shook hands with everyone. And I told him that I had worked for his father and that he was not just a brilliant lawyer, but a wonderful boss and a fabulous mm -hmm. human being. Uh, I had the, I've had the privilege to see or work with some truly outstanding lawyers. Rex was one of them. Mm -hmm. He had the ability not to argue a case to the court, but to engage in a learned conversation with people. It wasn't as if he wasn't adequately representing his party, he always, his client, he always did. It wasn't as if he was too relaxed, uh, he never was. But it was as if it was an, a discussion on an issue of law involving equals. Mm -hmm. He had a different job than the justices. But it wasn't as if he was – and he certainly didn't show any disrespect uh, to them or look down or anything like that as some other lawyers have done. Uh, no, he, he was able just to engage in a very casual, candid but learned discussion like you would hope to see uh, faculty engage in at a law school. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. And the justices, you could tell, trusted him completely. Mm -hmm. They believed what he had to say. If he said something was in the record, they believed it was in the record, and they believed it was in the record where he said. No, he had a wonderful relationship with the people on the bench. He oh, was... and I think I may have left out one name, uh, Robert Bork. Robert Bork was uh, a judge on the D.C. Circuit for whom I had clerked and was also uh, in that upper rank of lawyers I've had the privilege of knowing. We're going to talk about Judge Bork a little bit more in, in a bit. But before we get there, uh, part of your time in the SG's office was when Bill Barr was the attorney general. So I have to ask, what do you think of President Trump uh, selecting him to be his next attorney general? I think it was a home run. I think he is going to be a terrific attorney general because I think he has in common with Ed Levy, the attorney general under President Gerald Ford a vision of how he sees the criminal and civil justice systems uh, in their optimum setting. Bill understands not just the law, but the context in which the law is presented, the types of issues that can arise, the settings in which law matters, and the importance of uh, paying fealty to the rule of law. But he also has a feeling for what is doable and the like. He's, he's very bright. He's very savvy. Uh, and I think – I thought he was a terrific 
attorney general before, and I think he'll be a terrific attorney general again. So getting back to Judge Bork, you clerked for him when he was on the D.C. Circuit. Tell me about that experience. Well, let me tell you something in particular that that I learned. Uh, The night before one of the cases was to be argued, I was in the chambers working on the case and he was in his office. The case, believe it or not, did not involve any major constitutional issue or important federal statute. It was a standard contracts case that wound up in federal court just because the parties were from different states. It's not the sort of case that you normally would expect to see in federal court or that you would expect to get a lot of attention. And I had come to the opinion that one of the parties was right on about 90 percent of the issues. Oh, and the issues, it read, the case read like a law school exam. It involved <laughs> everything that could come up in a contracts case. So late in the evening, he came into Chambers to talk to, about the case with me, and I told him what I thought the, the right answers were. But I said, I'm only about 90 percent certain uh, that this party is supposed to win on every issue. And he said, well, that's not good enough. I want to be certain that we get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be 100 percent confident that this is the side that should win this case. So let's see what they have to say at argument tomorrow. And what impressed me about that was a side of, of him that no one got to see during the confirmation hearings. Everything was politicized. Mm-hmm. He wasn't being political in the least. He cared greatly about coming to the right answer in the case, reaching the right decision, making sure that – The party who wound up getting the judgment entered in his or her favor deserved to have it entered in his or her favor because that was the right answer on the law. And this wasn't, like I say, a major constitutional case or a case involving an important federal statute. It was a standard run-of-the-mill contract case. But he wanted to get it right. And that impressed me tremendously. Mm -hmm. What's something people may not know about Judge Bork? Well, probably a great many things uh, because unfortunately he was caricatured Mm -hmm. during that hearing. People never really got to see what he was like. But one thing that was clear, if he trusted your judgment, if you were above the line, say, then he would listen to you and treat you with respect. Keep in mind, you know, I was a recent law school graduate Uh, To say I was wet behind the ears is an understatement. (laughs) Uh, People come out of law school and they think they have a corner on uh, the legal wisdom market and they don't. Uh, I don't now. I certainly didn't then. But he listened to what I had to say. And this is a fellow who is smarter than I ever could hope to be, who is a better lawyer than I could ever hope to be. and had more accolades that he had earned than I ever could. And yet he was willing to listen with respect to what my opinion was on legal issues. And that combined with what I just mentioned, that he cared about getting every case right, are two facets of his personality that the public really never got a chance to see Mm -hmm. during the confirmation hearings. What do you think is the most important thing you, you learned from Judge Bork during your clerkship? To thine own self be true. He didn't try to massage his beliefs in order to get confirmed to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. 
He had beliefs that some people thought were controversial. He set them out. He defended them. They wound up voting against him, and it wasn't because he was out of the mainstream. Uh, it wasn't because he lacked judicial temperament, even though those were two of the reasons given. They just didn't like the way he might rule in certain cases. Mm -hmm. And they also didn't like the fact that uh, the president who nominated him was a Republican and it was the Democrats that were in charge of the Senate then. But he didn't try to do anything to soften his views. He was honest in explaining what he thought the law was. And I respect him for that because it cost him. So speaking of confirmations, you also worked for Senator Orrin Hatch on the Senate Judiciary Committee as the chief counsel for the crime unit. Tell me about that experience. Orrin Hatch was one of the most wonderful individuals I've ever had the good fortune to know in my life. He is bright, hardworking, fair, reasonable, ethical, and just generous of spirit. He was a fabulous person to have as a boss because mm -hmm. you could talk to him and he would listen. I mean, this is a person who wound up having a career in the Senate longer than anyone else in the Republican Party, a fellow who uh, deservedly received accolades from all different parts of the political and social spectrum, who has now earned his retirement, whether he puts up a gone fishing <laughs> sign or continues to serve in some manner. Uh, it was just a – he was a wonderful human being. It gave me great honor to have worked for him. But – and you might be surprised to know this. The, the person I, I had uh, great respect for as well was Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden treated me with respect when I was on the staff of the Judiciary Committee. He treated me better than several of the Republicans in fact. <laughs> uh, no, I think he is a wonderful human being. Uh, now, I had every reason to dislike him when I went to work for Senator Hatch because Joe Biden led the charge against Judge Bork. Mm -hmm. But he treated me with respect and I judge people on how they treat me. And so I came away with a very warm feeling for Joe Biden. So you've worked in all three branches of the federal government in private practice as an assistant general counsel at a big tech firm. Uh, a ball boy for the Yankees or was it the Mets? <laughs> and as a scholar at Heritage, what's the best job that you've had? It was working in the office of the Solicitor General. Yeah. No question. I had brilliant, gifted colleagues. I worked on intellectually challenging legal issues. I had the opportunity to try to find the right answer without any considerations of politics. I remember Rex Lee saying uh, the very first day I started work in that office, he was the one that hired me, all I want is your best work. I don't want you to worry about the politics at all. Give me what you think the right answer is. I'll deal with or worry about the politics. You tell me what's the best legal answer. And I did that. And one of the reasons I wound up loving Rex Lee was that he said I was right one time when I disagreed with the administration on a very important issue, an issue that was very important not just to the nation but to the administration because they staked out a position on it. Uh, 
And he supported me. He said that I was right. He said he would let the administration continue to make the argument uh, because he owed them uh, a duty of loyalty and their argument wasn't frivolous. But he said to me, no, you're right. They're wrong. After he did that uh, and particularly considering all the heat uh, I had been taking uh, in the meantime, I would have crawled across a floor of broken glass for the guy. <laughs> but no. And besides, if you're in the SG's office, you get to argue cases in the Supreme Court. That's the closest a lawyer can come to being a rock star. <laughs> Do you miss wearing your, your morning suit? Uh, I don't think the morning suit would fit nearly as well now. And so, uh, no, I don't. Uh <laughs> Enough for that reason, although that's also true. Uh, it's a young man's game or a young woman's game. It's like being a professional athlete. Uh, there's a time in your life you do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a time you, you move on to other things. Uh, if I had to do it again now, I suppose I could. But no, I enjoyed it when I did it. I look back fondly on the days that I did it. But it's a young person's game. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, you've had a lot of different positions throughout your career. And a lot of our listeners are law students and and young lawyers just starting out. So what advice do you have for them to help them find their path? Well, I'm probably about as far from being a role model in this regard as anybody could be. (laughs) Uh, I have had, to put it mildly, an unusual career. Uh, You remember those questions that you used to get on the SAT exams, A is to B is C is to D? Yeah. Well, my career is to a normal legal career as Brownian motion is to a NASA flight plan. Okay? <laughs> I have moved around and done a bunch of different things. Uh, however, I have had a friend who, uh, who said, Paul, you never worked a day in your life. You did <laughs> things that you enjoyed doing and you had fun. And when they stopped being fun, you moved on to something else. I suppose the, the two things I would advise you know, up-and-coming lawyers to do is first – Make sure you find something that gives you professional and personal satisfaction that is near and dear to your heart Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're never going to do as well as you otherwise would. And second, don't ever take a job you can't get out of. Don't take a position unless you just absolutely need it to put a roof over your head that makes it difficult to go somewhere else after that. Mm -hmm. I mean I've never taken a job – that I didn't think I could hold forever. But I also never took a job where I couldn't leave to go on to something else if I wanted to. So I want to talk a little bit about your work at Heritage. Um, You've covered a lot of ground with your scholarship, from death row dogs to occupational licensing to drugged uh, driving. Uh, What area of law or policy is your favorite? Well, my favorite article was the death row dogs article. (laughs) You do Uh, love dogs. (laughs) I love dogs. I'm a huge dog person. But also because the assumption on which that article rests is the possibility of redemption. Uh, I think we all have that possibility. I won't say we all have that possibility. I think most of us probably do. It's unfortunate that some don't and it's just – the nature of what happens to people in life. There are some people who, for reasons that may not be in any way their fault, wound up becoming hardwired in such a way 
that they are destined to injure others, commit crimes and the like. And redemption is just not going to be possible in those cases. I mean, I've heard it said that most people on death row were physically or sexually abused as children. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. And that's a tragedy. But when you look at what they did, it is equally a tragedy for the people who they killed and for the family members and the like. Uh, the death row dogs was about using dogs to help rehabilitate prisoners. And I think it gives some prisoners the opportunity for the first time in their lives to love something and to have something love them. And it assumes that for a great many people, redemption is possible. And that's probably true. And that's nice to know. It's just unfortunate that maybe it doesn't happen as much as it should. But the two subject matter areas I care most about are clemency and uh, DWI. Clemency because it's nice to be able as a matter of society to say, even though you have sinned, we'll forgive you for what you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gives the president or a governor the opportunity to say, I forgive you, go and sin no more. DWI is an issue of mine because I'm one of these people who believes there are two types of jobs in life, saving lives and everything else. (laughs) And in the clemency field, you're giving somebody back whatever portion is left of his or her life. In the DWI subject matter, you may actually be saving some lives Mm -hmm. because the prevalence of alcohol and various illicit drugs – Uh, principally opioids and marijuana today, uh, create a terrible potential for increased morbidity and mortality on the nation's highways. Mm -hmm. And trying to do something about that allows people to go home at night, to spend the night by him or herself or with loved ones. And like I said, there's no more noble calling in life than saving lives. So one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? It would be Byron White and part of the conversation would be about sports. Of course. (laughs) Byron White was a fabulous athlete. He was uh, an All-American in college at the University of Colorado, the runner-up for the Heisman Trophy, drafted in the first round by the then Pittsburgh Pirates, now Pittsburgh Steelers. He, as a rookie in the NFL, led the league in rushing. He then won a Rhodes Scholarship. Actually, he won the Rhodes Scholarship before he started playing football. Uh, He postponed his uh, year at Oxford so he could play one year. Uh, (laughs) But then he later played two years for the Detroit Lions. Uh, And so, no question. Uh, I I would love to talk with him about the difference between football then and football now. Mm Mm-hmm. But Byron White was also just one of these all-round Renaissance men that excels in everything he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like Chris Christofferson. Chris Christofferson excelled in uh, probably a half dozen different areas. Songwriting is only one of them. Byron White was also a brilliant man. Uh, he was first in his class at the Yale Law School. He wound up working at the Justice Department as a deputy attorney general. And the reason he he got there was because of uh, some experiences he had earlier in his life. 
He was in Navy intelligence in the Second World War. He was tasked with the responsibility of writing the after-action report on the sinking of PT-109. And when John Kennedy returned to Hawaii after being uh, recovered, he found out that they had a report had been written about his death. And he went and looked up Byron White. And they knew each other from the days that White had been at Oxford because Mm -hmm. uh, John Kennedy's father at that time was the ambassador to the court of St. James. And so they rekindled the friendship they early had and they stayed friends thereafter. Bobby Kennedy was the campaign manager for John Kennedy. Byron White was uh, the campaign manager in Colorado. And then Bobby asked Byron to join him at the Justice Department. Then Byron went on the Supreme Court. So I would want to talk to him about legal issues mm-hmm. and also what he thought of John Kennedy because he knew him. Mm-hmm. And although I was alive when John Kennedy was alive, I by no means even met him or <laughs> saw him in real life, let alone knew him. So I talked with him about sports. I talked with him about the law and I would talk with him about John Kennedy. His time in the Second World War had an influence on his jurisprudence. He was very concerned, it seemed to me, to make sure the government was not acting in an arbitrary manner. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at his cases, he rarely voted in favor of a judgment that would deny someone the opportunity to go to court to challenge what the government was doing. And I would love to know if seeing what was happening in Italy, in Germany, and Japan had an influence on him in that regard. Mm-hmm. Now, he thought the government is entitled to a great deal of breath in deciding whether what the government is doing is permissible. Uh, the term reasonable uh, had a very broad understanding in his mind. But he made sure that the government was not acting in an arbitrary manner. And I would love to know if his experience uh, in dealing with fascism, Nazism, uh, and the, the Japanese autocracy and monarchy – had that, that sort of effect on him. So I, all, yeah, all sorts of things with him. I could talk with him forever. <laughs> well, these sound like a lot of great conversations with Byron Wizard White. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Listen, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and if I can help you again on something else, let me know. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, SCOTUS Class Photo Edition, and I'm going to try to stump Josh Blackman. Are, are you ready? Uh, I think so. <laughs> okay, first question. When was the court's first portrait taken with the justices in their robes? Oh, it's 1860, I want to say 1867. That is correct. Oh, uh, I, I knew it was after the Civil War. I don't know quite how far it was. Okay, man, that, that, that was good. And the, the photo was taken by Alexander Gardner, who was a Scottish photographer best known for his photos of President Lincoln as well as the execution of Lincoln's assassination co-conspirators. Ooh, I didn't know that last part. Yeah. If you look at his Wikipedia page, you can see some pretty grisly photos. <laughs> Next up. Uh, today, how much time are photographers given to shoot the portrait? Oh, well, no, this part I read in the LipTech article. So apparently they used to have three minutes, but uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist didn't very much want to waste that much time. So now they have two minutes with a stopwatch, and they're, they're, they're shoot out. Uh, and one other bit, which I learned from Tony Morrow's uh, uh, a column this week, that apparently anything said before or after that two minutes is off the record. And uh, one of the AP photographers uh, noted in a, in, a, in a tweet to Mark Sherman that um, 
Joseph Gorsuch was wearing a Denver's Broncos shirt or something. And apparently that was before the two minutes, which was supposed to be disclosed, and there was some missing about that. So it's a stringent two minutes to get all those uh, grimaces in. <laughs> yes, and uh, Kathy Arberg, the court's public information officer, looks on with her stopwatch to count down the time. Crazy. Next question. Which justice spends the two minutes joking around and has earned the ire of photographers? Uh, I'll go with I'll go with Justice Thomas. He's always making jokes at every juncture. The most quiet justice is always making a ruckus. <laughs> you are correct. It's Clarence Thomas. Uh, but this is perhaps better than his predecessor, Thurgood Marshall, who often slept through the photo. <laughs> All right. You're, you're uh, hitting it out of the park with this. OK, fourth question. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg accessorized her robes in the new portrait. What is she wearing? Oh, her, her, her jabot, and it was a gold one, too, but not her dissenting one. It's not the dissenting one. I thought no. it was. No, no, no. It, it was slightly different. There was some Twitter traffic on this. It wasn't her dissenting jabot, but it was, it, was, it was gold. She has a lot that looked very similar, which is very confusing to me, and I'm not, I am not fashion conscious, but I know enough that's not the dissenting jabot. <laughs> I, I thought that it looked like the dissenting jabot, but either way, uh, the notorious RBG certainly likes to make a statement. Okay, final question. One official portrait was actually a composite of several images. Which year was that, or rather, upon which justice's arrival at the court was this portrait? Yeah, taken? it was a 2017. It was after Justice Gorsuch um, arrived on the court. Now, I, I was surprised. I, I haven't quite seen what the, what the composite, what the photoshopping is. I don't know who got swapped in and out. It's a little bit creepy. <laughs> it it is, um, you know, and I I like seeing the you know the various uh, iterations of of the portraits where you know you've got Justice Thomas laughing or you've got um, you know this year Ruth Bader Ginsburg was kind of grimacing, uh, you know, because she had just uh, you know come back from to the court from uh, from her fall. Um, but anyway, uh, I wonder if we'll you know ultimately it'll be a composite image this year as well. Well. As you mentioned, you know, these tidbits came from Adam Liptak's very entertaining article in The New York Times about the court's class photo tradition. And you got all five right. So well done. Uh, And thank you so much for joining me, Josh. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, Best of luck to everyone at Heritage. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.